The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Kate Setter, your host for our episode today, and we are joined in the studio by Dr. Bob DeFore. Thanks for being here with us, Dr. DeFore. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. And Dr. DeFore is a pediatric urologist here at Cincinnati Children's, and he's joining us to talk about kidney stones. And could we start with just a, a quick introduction to who you are and what pediatric urology is? Yes, thank you. So I have been here at Cincinnati Children's for about 20 years. I'm a pediatric urologist, so I specialize in disorders of the kidneys and the bladder and the urinary tract, and we take care of patients from ages birth to 21 and even sometimes past, and we deal with a lot of kidney stones, and I think that's what we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. So it's the end of the summer. School is happening right now. Kids are going back to school every day. And they've been on summer schedules and they've been eating summer diets. And so based on our you know, earlier conversations, understand that this combination can lead to kidney stones in kids. But could we start with just kind of a definition of what are they and why are they concerning? Yes, thank you. So kidney stones are very common. You would rarely see a child with a kidney stone. Now we see patients daily, multiple times a day with kidney stones. And so it's increasing considerably. And you mentioned that we're getting into the late summer, early fall. So we begin to see a lot of kidney stone patients in the fall. And we presume it's because they've started to form their stones in the summer. And they, it takes a while to form a stone. It's basically crystals, usually of calcium, that clump together in the urinary tract. And so most of the time you don't even know it's there until it gets big enough and it kind of wobbles around and then it kind of goes down from the kidney, down the tube, into the close to the bladder. And if it gets stuck, it causes severe pain, severe pain. And it's not subtle. It's usually coming to the emergency room kind of pain. So you mentioned that they are mostly calcium deposits. What is it that like starts this formation? What causes them to form? Yeah, that's a great question. And, I, and we don't really know exactly why it's become such an epidemic in children. There's several theories. It could be sort of dehydration. It could be diet. It could be metabolic or genetic or just a combination of all of those factors. But we have really seen a lot in the last, like I said, last 20 years, it's really increased. And so about 10 years ago, we noticed that this was becoming a big issue. So we actually developed a multidisciplinary pediatric kidney stone center between various disciplines and services at the Children's Hospital. And we were one of the first, actually, to have a, a dedicated kidney stone center for children. So what is it about the summertime and what kids eat and drink or don't eat and don't drink during yeah. the summer that can lead to this kidney stone development? Yeah. So for most sort of healthy patients who don't have a lot of chronic medical conditions that might put them at risk of stones or genetic sort of uh, situation that puts them at risk of stones, usually it's a combination of dehydration and too much salt in the diet. And so it's counterintuitive. It's really not the calcium in the diet. So we don't limit our patients that are, have kidney stones from milk or cheese or other calcium-containing foods. It's really the sodium in the diet. And the sodium that's like table salt actually is in everything. So it's anything processed. It's anything fast food. It's anything that's canned. And so it's the sodium in the diet because the body, to get rid of the sodium and through the urinary tract, through the kidneys, it has to take calcium along with it. 
And so the sodium just sort of dissolves away into the urine and you pee it out, but the calcium can precipitate out. And that means it just kind of falls out of solution. And I explained to parents, it's kind of like stirring sugar into cold tea. You see all the little crystals come to the bottom of the glass and that's kind of what's happening to the calcium. It's just sort of falling out of solution. It's too concentrated. And so it starts to clump together. And then when it gets big enough, then it causes problems. So you mentioned that you're seeing patients every day who have kidney stones. Also mentioned that it's traditionally been thought of as, as an adult condition. Are kids getting kidney stones at the rate of adults or how common is it in kids at this point? Yeah, so we see more stones in teenagers or basically young adults. So they're sort of from a physiology standpoint, they're kind of like adults. Um, we do see them in younger children, but mostly those are kids who have other risk factors for kidney stones. Like they have a lot of urinary tract infections or they have some abnormality of the urinary tract, like from an anatomical standpoint, or they're on certain medications that can increase their risk of kidney stones. Uh, certain seizure medicines can cause that. So normally the new patients that we see are kind of in the teenage, maybe even mm -hmm. late adolescent age. Mm -hmm. And so, but the one thing about kids that's a little different from adults is that the recurrence rate is higher. So a lot of adults have kidney stones. I had a kidney stone 10 years ago and I presumably don't have any more, but in children, if you have one stone, you're at a very high risk of getting another. And so that's what makes it a little different from adults. And so if you have one kidney stone like myself, they don't do a lot of testing. They don't do a lot of labs. You don't do a lot of follow-up. They might just tell you to drink more water and you know watch the sodium in your diet. But in children, we do actually a full metabolic workup because the risk is higher. And so we don't want this child to kind of live their whole life dealing with kidney stones one after another. So we kind of try to figure out what caused the stone and what we can do to prevent the next one. Can stones cause any long-term damage? Absolutely. And that's why we have our colleagues in the pediatric nephrology department work very closely with us. So we're the urologist, we're the plumber. And so we work with the nephrologist. So that's more like the pediatric type of kidney doctor. And so we work very closely with the nephrologist and they are our co-providers in the pediatric kidney stone center. And so we kind of are available if the patient has pain or is passing a stone or needs surgery. Whereas the nephrologist is really the one that's gonna kind of take it after that point and try to prevent the next stone whether it be medication or hydration or diet or um, some other sort of intervention, you know, they, they are the ones that really work hard to try to prevent that next stone. So what about gender? Is there any greater risk in male or female patients? Not really. They're, they're, we see both male and female that, that get kidney stones, and it seems to be really not significantly higher one versus the other. So it, it can affect kids of, of, you know, all genders, yeah. So just to switch a little bit and talk about the symptoms, you mentioned pain that is not subtle. Mm -hmm. Any other symptoms that parents could look for? Yeah, yeah. So so like you said, the pain is the most common, and we call that colic. And that, that word means sort of pain that kind of comes and goes and sort of grabs you you know, like a vice. And so that's usually in the body when there's some sort of tubular structure that's sort of obstructed or blocked. That can cause the the muscular action of the wall, the tube um, upstream from whatever is being blocked to kind of contract sort of rhythmically. And so renal colic is where the kidney is sort of stretched and, and not draining because of some sort of blockage or obstruction from the kidney stone. And it's usually pain that's kind of high up in the upper back. We call that the flank. So if you kind of 
put your hand on your side and kind of go up as high as you can, that's your flank. And right underneath that rib cage at the very bottom of your rib cage is the kidney. And so the pain usually starts right there. And it's sort of like grabbing your side like a vice clamp and it just it's unbearable pain and it kind of comes in waves. So it kind of sort of hits a peak and it kind of sort of diminishes a little bit and then it kind of comes back and sort of waves of pain. And as the stone goes down the tube and that tube is called the ureter towards the bladder, the pain will kind of move to the front, almost kind of to your, the lower part of your abdomen. And it can be mistaken for other things like appendicitis even. And so sometimes patients will come in with severe lower abdominal pain and they get a CAT scan because they're, you know, being ruled out for an appendicitis and whoa, there it is, the kidney swollen and there's a little kidney stone. And so sometimes we'll see patients present like that. And then as the stone gets closer to the bladder, that's where it gets stuck usually. It gets stuck right where the tube, the ureter, kind of travels through the wall of the bladder, which is a muscle, into the sort of the inside of the bladder. And that's where they mostly get stuck. And when that happens, the bladder starts to spasm. And that's that feeling like you got to pee really, really bad. Like you're standing in line at a movie theater or at a ball game and you're kind of hopping around like you got to go to the bathroom really bad. That is sort of uh, what we call a bladder spasm. And that's the final symptom typically of the kidney stone is because it's really irritating the bladder. Mm -hmm. And then it pops into the bladder hopefully. And then usually you feel so much better. And once it's in the bladder, you just kind of urinate it out. It really doesn't get stuck from that point out. And so we call that renal colic. And that's sort of the, the classic symptoms for a kidney stone. Now, is it always classic? No. And I tell parents that kidney stones don't read the textbooks. So sometimes the pain is sort of atypical, meaning it can cause sort of nonspecific symptoms, or it can cause pain that's sort of diffuse. Or in a younger child, they may not be able to sort of, you know, really verbalize, you know, exactly mm -hmm. where the pain is. They just say, my tummy hurts or my stomach hurts. But the other big symptoms would be vomiting. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very, very common with a kidney stone. When you're passing a stone, a stone, you feel very nauseated. You feel like you want to throw up and you may just have just, you know, just over and over and over again, kind of retching and, and, and vomiting. And then the other symptom would be like blood in the urine, like you could see it. Mm -hmm. And it just takes one drop of blood to make a whole bucket of urine turn red. And so you can even pee and it looks like Kool-Aid. And, and that doesn't mean you're losing a lot of blood, but it just mixes in with the urine and it's a very powerful dye. So it can be very alarming mm -hmm. that all of a sudden you urinate and it looks like you just peed out some tomato juice. And that's, that can be you know a stone passing. Now, the difficulty with us is we have a lot of very complex medical patients at Cincinnati Children's, mm -hmm. patients who um, have cerebral palsy, who have developmental delay, who are nonverbal, who have very, very atypical symptoms. And so I just want to comment on that because, because it's very tricky to know what's going on with a patient like that. And the parents will just know they seem agitated or they just don't seem themselves. They know better than anyone that something's going on. And it could it be a kidney stone? Could it be a urinary tract infection? Could it be a you know, some sort of intestinal issue or feeding intolerance. So it's so difficult. And our stone center is, um, we have an enormous number of complex medical patients and mm -hmm. it's so difficult to figure out what's going on with these patients. And they're also very challenging to get into the operating room. They have a lot of heart and lung issues. They have a lot of high risks for surgery. They sometimes have what we call flexion contractures where their, their legs and arms are kind of very difficult to straighten out. And so putting them up in position for surgery is, is very difficult. And so we've made a lot of breakthroughs here lately, just in the last year or two. It's very exciting. And we figured out that a lot of these patients, it's due to their diet. And so a lot of these complex patients have feeding tubes. And so they get all of their nutrition through a feeding tube. And so sometimes the recipes for their nutrition has a certain high level of something called oxalate. 
An oxalate is another mineral that binds with the calcium and forms the stones. And so when you have a diet very high in oxalate, that can bind up that calcium and form stones. And so we've made huge breakthroughs lately in figuring out that some of these diets are very high in soy-based protein, which is very high in oxalate. And so we've just by adjusting their diet, we've decreased the stone burden in a lot of patients and made their quality of life so much better. And we're avoiding surgery. And we've shown that some of our publications that patients that come through our kidney stone center, they have less surgeries, they have less visits to the emergency room, they have less, you know, episodes of pain, which then the parents don't have to take off time from work and the parents don't have to be in the hospital with their children. It's just a win-win all around. That sounds like remarkable research for that patient population. And I'm curious if, so it sounds like finding kind of the culprit in the diet can sometimes make a huge difference. If we're talking about the patient population of more typically developing children, are there any typical culprits in their usual diets that a parent could make some changes and help prevent the risk? Absolutely. So every patient that we see in our Stone Center, we make two initial recommendations. One is they need to drink, drink, drink. And I tell parents, you know how you know if their child is drinking enough? If their urine is clear. Mm -hmm. If it's clear, they're, they're well hydrated. If it's yellow or, heaven forbid, dark yellow or brown, they're way too dehydrated. And that's when those little salts will precipitate out and form a stone. So that's number one, hydration. And number two is being aware of the amount of sodium in your diet. Easy for me to say, not so easy to do in practice. And I have teenagers. I know what their diet's like. And it's very difficult. And so um, just knowing that, and, and if you have ever been a heart patient or known someone who's on a low sodium diet, it's very difficult, very, very difficult. And it's hard to monitor that. And so, but just being aware of the issue and making sort of choices with your diet, you know, and just kind of being aware of what, you know, what things can increase the risk of stones is, is I think, important. And then as far as diet goes, we when we do our full evaluation, we do what's called a 24-hour urinary metabolic evaluation. And so that looks at a lot of dietary factors because high protein in the diet can cause kidney stones, too much sodium in the diet can cause kidney stones. So we look at probably hundreds of different things in the urine that can kind of sort of pinpoint a cause. And sometimes we find a reason and sometimes we don't. But we can kind of rule out a lot of dietary factors. And so we start with sort of non-specific advice until we get more information, and then we can give a more precise recommendation. You know, I, I, I tell this story all the time. I had a patient who worked at a local um, fast food restaurant, and his job was um, sort of bagging the chips. You know, he was in the back sort of bagging the chips, and then they sold them up front. And he had the highest urine sodium I've ever seen in my entire life. It was unbelievable. It was off the charts. And he kept making stones one after another. And so I think he was just sort of eating a chip, eating <laughs> every a chip, once in a while. <laughs> eating a chip, maybe more than every once in a while. And so that um, basically making that single intervention and making them aware that that was an issue was life changing, really, because mm -hmm. he stopped making stones. And so, so we start with non-specific recommendations as far as diet and hydration. Um, the other thing that's sort of relatively easy to do is we, if especially if patients can't drink a lot of water or they just don't like drinking so much water is lemonade. So the citric acid in lemonade, orange juice, those sorts of things is what we call a kidney stone inhibitor. So it'll actually keep the calcium and the oxalate from clumping together and forming stones. And so sometimes our pediatric nephrology colleagues will actually prescribe a medication. It's kind of like a vitamin basically called potassium citrate, which actually increases the citrate level in the urine, which is a kidney stone inhibitor. But you can also do it naturally by just drinking lemonade. And so 
typically we'll use something like crystal light or whatever. Um, you just have to be careful of the sugar, especially with like orange juice, but, mm -hmm. but those kind of drinks have a ton of citric acid. And so that will help, you know, sometimes if you just can't drink so much water, but in general, like a teenager, they need to be drinking about two to three liters of water a day. And so that's a lot. And so they need to keep a water bottle at school. So then we have to write a letter to the school that they can have a water bottle and they can have, you know, bathroom privileges. Because mm -hmm. if you drink more, you're going to have to go to the bathroom more. And so all those kind of things come into play. And schools sometimes, you know, push back a little bit on kids going to the bathroom every hour, missing class or leaving classroom. So we sometimes have to write letters and notes and to the schools for that kind of thing. Yeah. And I had seen somewhere that sports drinks can be somewhat problematic. Is there any truth in that? Well, you just have to look at the at the labels and just kind of see what the sodium content is. Yeah. So you had mentioned going back to symptoms and just want to circle back to that for a moment because you said it's like pain, like go to the emergency department right now pain. Mm -hmm. Is the emergency department the right level of care to seek if you have a child who's experiencing this? Great question. So that does come into play. And so we we really would like to keep our patients out of the emergency department if we can. And so obviously if, if it's an unknown diagnosis, then you know that kind of pain is probably going to take you into the emergency room. I think that was my point. But if it's a known stone former, if it's someone who's formed stones, they've had stones, it's the same symptoms as they always have, then we do try to manage them at home. And so that may be with medication. And we almost always use just over-the-counter medications, ibuprofen or Tylenol, we almost never, ever have to use narcotics in children. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, they just really don't need it most of the time. But we would use aggressively over-the-counter analgesics or, or pain medicine. But yeah, we try to avoid having to escalate to, mm -hmm. you know, but but if we have to, we'll have a patient seen in the emergency room or we'll have them seen in our clinic or, you know, we'll even admit them to the hospital for pain control if we have to. And so if they don't pass the stone... Mm -hmm. Or they have any complications, like just they're super dehydrated, they're vomiting, they're just in intractable pain, or that's associated with a urinary tract infection, which is a very, very dangerous situation. If you have an obstructing kidney stone and a kidney infection, that can lead to sepsis very quickly. And so in a patient like that, then we would maybe proceed with surgery. So you had mentioned kind of new pain, the super intense pain. So patients who aren't known stone producers. Mm -hmm. If you have a child who's in that much pain, a trip to the emergency department is always warranted, yes? Correct, yes. So especially if it's a new diagnosis and it could be appendicitis, it could be whatever. Yep. So, um, but, but they're a, a known stone former with sort of typical classic symptoms. Mm -hmm. Usually we'll try to manage them at home with yeah. pain medication and, yeah. Fantastic. But when we're talking about people who have had stones as adolescents and produce them repeatedly, does that follow them into adulthood? Are they likely to continue through their lifetime if they don't make adjustments? Yes. Yeah, that 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 can happen. And so that's why we wanted to kind of sort of nip that in the bud, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So we, whether it's medication or hydration or whatever, we definitely don't want this to be a lifelong event because like you asked before, it definitely leads to chronic kidney disease and damage to the kidneys and repeated obstruction, repeated infections, repeated inflammation. The kidney just does not like that. And so over time, that will cause damage to the kidney that, that is irreversible. So surgery is is a possible treatment option if that's what the patient needs. So Correct. Yeah. Yes. Would love to, to know more about yeah. that. So, so surgery is always only when they have not sort of been managed with medical intervention. So we mm -hmm. always try hydration and medications first. And like I said, we can even admit patients for aggressive hydration with intravenous or IV fluids. 
and, and medication to keep them comfortable. But if they don't pass the stone or if there's any signs of infection, then, then emergency surgery is indicated. And so what that usually involves is placement of what's called a ureteral stent. And remember the ureter is the drainage tube between the kidney and the bladder. A stent is a little tiny little plastic straw that sort of bypasses the stone. So you place that up through the bladder, backwards up the ureter into the kidney. And so that sort of allows the kidneys to drain around the stone. Okay, and so that's an emergency surgery that we'll do whenever it's needed, even in the middle of the night, if the patient needs it. And so the stent is then placed, and let's say there's a stone stuck in the ureter that won't pass. And we know kind of by the size of the stone what the probability is that they'll pass the stone. For example, mm -hmm. in a child that's less than, let's say a teenager that has a stone that's over 3.5 millimeters, which is about an eighth of an inch, they have a very low likelihood of passing that stone. And as the stone gets bigger, four, five, six, seven millimeters, the chances of them kicking it out is very low. Now, if it's smaller than 3.5 millimeters, let's say it's one millimeter or two millimeters, then they have a very high likelihood of passing the stone spontaneously. And we've done extensive research on this topic and that information is being published and it's you know fairly well known as far as the size cutoff. But let's say a patient has a seven millimeter stone and it's stuck in the ureter sort of halfway down, the patient's having a lot of pain, that's when you would have a conversation with the family that maybe we need to go in and do surgery. And so if they're not too symptomatic, like their pain is manageable, then we would do the surgery electively. And electively means it's not an emergency. And so we would put them on the schedule as quick as we can. And so what we do is once they're under anesthesia, and depending on the age, if they're a small child, nothing painful happens awake. They just put them to sleep with a little mask. If they're a teenager, they'll get an IV ahead of time to give them some pain medicine and, and put them off to sleep. But once they're under general anesthesia, then we would go in with a tiny little telescope through the water channel that you pee out of into the bladder and then up the tube and address the stone. And once we see the stone with our little telescope, then we can blast it into little tiny dust particles with a laser. And usually we'll leave a stent for a few days after that just to kind of let all the little stone particles kind of kind of pass. And that surgery usually takes about half an hour or so mm -hmm. if, if everything goes well. And then the stent would stay in for about two or three days. And then we take it out in the office through with a little string on the end of it. Now, if the surgery is more complicated or if we have more stones to address up in the kidney and we have to come back another day, then we'll cut the little string and so it'll all be internal and then you would have a second surgery maybe a week or two later to kind of address the rest of the stones. Now, if the stones are huge, like way up in the kidney and like little boulders, then you actually have to do a much more uh, invasive procedure where you actually go straight through the side with a little, little catheter and a channel under anesthesia to address the stones. And we have all the little tools and we have lasers, we have little jackhammers, we have little ultrasonic, what we call lithotripter, which means something to break up a stone. So we have all the bells and whistles and toys and, and up-to-date, state-of-the-art kind of instruments to treat any kind of stone in any part of the urinary tract of any size. Okay. We almost never have to do open surgery for kidney stones. It's all minimally invasive um, or what we call endoscopic or cystoscopic, meaning it's all done through sort of natural openings without having to make a, an incision. Do you have data on about what percentage of kids who present with a kidney stone are going to need surgery? Yeah, so it, it all depends on basically the size of the stone, where it is, 
and also sort of the medical status of the patient. So a patient who has a lot of complex medical conditions um, who would be much more susceptible to sepsis, and we would want to avoid them getting a really bad infection and ending up in an intensive care unit, they may be a little more likely to go to surgery than sort of your your healthy teenage boy who's having his first stone and, you know, and he's a football player and chronically dehydrated and, and you know, and, and is not having a lot of pain that needs to be aggressively managed, then, then, you know, they would be less likely maybe to go to surgery if they have a smaller stone. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we wrap up our conversation today? Well, this has been great. I, I appreciate you're giving us the uh, the forum to talk about kidney stones in children because it is a growing problem. And we see, like I said, patients nearly every day with a new diagnosis of kidney stones and, and our pediatric stone center is very busy. The Children's Hospital has given us a lot of resources to help take care of kids with stones. Um, we have a full-time nurse coordinator. Her name is Renee and she has a great phone number. It's 513-803-ROCK. R-O-C-K. We're, we're not sure exactly who came up with that. She thinks I did. I think she did. But we love our phone number. So that number um, gets you to our pediatric stone center right away. If it's after hours, there's always a doctor available. And so if a patient has a kidney stone, we're always available 24-7. And then, um, and like I said, you know, from an, uh, a surgery standpoint, hopefully we don't, it doesn't get to that. Mm -hmm. But we have every possible modality uh, treatment option to treat whatever stone we almost never ever have to refer patients to other centers to manage stones surgically. I can think of one or two in the last 20 years that I've had to send to another center for a kidney stone procedure, but it's very uncommon that we can't take care of it. Well, your program, the urology program here at Cincinnati Children's was recently named number one in the nation. So we are thrilled that you joined us today and that we're able to share this information with families in our community and outside of our community and certainly hope that fewer kids have kidney stones, but when they do, now people are more prepared to know what to do. Um, so we appreciate your time today, Dr. DeFore. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And you've been listening to Young and Healthy. We'll call it a day there. We'll see you next time. This episode was recorded on August 16th, 2023. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. This episode was produced by Kayla McNeil, and our theme music was created by Stephen Greco. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.